0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Last week, I think it was just last Sunday, of course, there's a lot of us that go out to the abortion clinic every week, but last Sunday, a number were there for the 40 days of life that's going on right now, just kind of an emphasis that the church puts on a couple of times a year, just get people out there and just maintain a constant uh, force of prayer. So we had a bunch of uh, folks out there and someone rolled up. Now it's Sunday. You're not anticipating anybody rolling up. Uh, Folks don't typically roll up to talk to you or to go to the clinic or anything else. So they're not going to the clinic. We know that. So they rolled uh, up. They uh, put down their window and they said, hey, thank you all for being out here. By the way, that's the other thing that didn't happen much. They don't usually say thank you for being out there. But this, this lady said thank you for being out here. Uh, because of you all. Now, she didn't mean that crowd. She meant the pro-life movement, the people who were out there on a regular basis. Thank you all for being out here. Because you were out here, that happened. And she pointed in her back seat, and there was her little girl. And I thought to myself, now that's it. You don't have to have many of those to make you feel real good about what God might be doing in you or through you. So, that was kind of a nice thing. Furthermore, uh, Regina was out there this week, and uh, and a, a reporter came up. Now she's just sitting there. No one else is out there. It's her alone. And she thought, well, you know, the clinic's not open, so let me just sit down on a chair and sing. You had your guitar, right? Sing with my guitar into the clinic. I'm thinking, well, good. That's the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's it's great to be out there when people are there. It's great to be out when people aren't there. Let's just keep. Jesus moving out there one way or another, if at all possible. And a reporter stops and says, what are you doing? Well, there you go. Reporters are stopping. People are rolling down the windows saying, thanks for coming. Good stuff happening as we go out there. And of course, I was out there this week and had an opportunity to speak with a number of ladies just telling her, listen, my church will stand with you. Whatever you need, we're going to be there to help. And it's great to know that we've got a church that will indeed do that sort of thing. Stand behind ladies who feel like they're in crises and behind their babies. So, Day Spring, that's a little bit about what we're talking about today compassion ministry. Uh, there's a lot of us in here that could testify to this. David, I know, Bill, uh, others of us who go out to the prison regularly and have someone on the street. And, and I mean, when I say on the street, I don't go out to the street much, I don't, really, but I remember I was walking across the street not long ago and someone said, Matt. I looked around and I thought, whoa, whoa, what, what? And there was a guy that uh, looked like he's in a pretty rough way, but uh, the closer I got to him, I thought, oh, yeah, my friend from the penal farm. We hugged each other and, and had a chance to talk. That happens, it happened a, a year or two ago uh, at the donut shop. Now, I like meeting guys at the donut shop. That's one of my favorite things right there, so... He says, uh, stop just a minute. And he didn't say anything about me, but the guy I was with. And he happened to be a student at Wesley Biblical Seminary. He said, hey, I want to thank you, not me. I thought, hey, dude, kind of like you know, shift your attention this way if you would. He didn't. He didn't look at me. He said, you, thank you. I remember you coming out regularly to the penal farm and regularly ministering to us. And it meant all the difference in my life. You get those kind of reports over and over and over again as we decide not to stay in here, but decide to leave and have impact. We decide to leave and have impact. It's what God created us to do. To come here to get energized, yes. To come here and get inspired, yes. To come here and hear the Word of God, yes. But the gospel is more than you coming to church. The gospel is you coming to church and leaving the church and deciding to have impact outside these four walls. Amen? So we talk about that today during our sermon. And so, I want to tell you, regularly we go over the, the habits of a day springer. This next chart isn't that, but it is. I just found a different way to, to put this up. for we, uh, we, we recognize that there have long been in the church things called the means of grace. And by when we say means of grace, this is what we mean. When God graces us with himself, these are the typical ways, he can do it any way he wants, but these are the typical ways he rides into our life. And we shouldn't be surprised that prayer would be up there, right? As I pray, I recognize God has a roadway that's profound into my life. Is that the only way he can come? No, there's lots of ways up there, and there's probably other ways besides these things. But these are noted means of grace by which he utilizes to ride into our life. And the more we do these things, the more wide open we are to him. So he says, all right, prayer and scripture study, fasting. By the way, fastings an interesting one here. Anybody here regularly fast? It's one of the basic fundamental disciplines of the Christian faith. Ooh, we're okay with prayer, but fasting's a little bit something else. Jesus didn't think so. He taught about it. He didn't say, if you ever fast, He said, when you fast. And it was, for the early church, a a twice-a-week discipline. And so He says, I want you to fast. Prayer, Scripture, fasting, giving, the Lord's Supper, and what we're going to call conferencing. And by the way, you're in a conference right now. How's it feel? How's your conference feel? Yeah, this is conferencing. But there are different levels of conferencing. The worship service is one of them, but then there's other levels of conferencing. We have a conferencing time here on Friday evenings with Celebrate Recovery. We have a conferencing dynamic that goes on on Sunday nights for a lot of us. Mine happens to be on Thursday nights, but we have a conferencing dynamic that happens with small groups or home cells, discipleship groups. Those are conferencing things. So, Conferencing was very important when we understood how could God ride into my life in a profound way this week? He says, the works of piety would be one of the tremendous ways, but not the only way. I think a lot of the church stops right there. By the way, a lot of the church teaches those things. When I'm talking about the church, I mean us. A lot of the church will teach those things and not do them. But very rarely do they ever talk about the means of grace where they get over to the other side. And i got to tell you something about this. When I went to seminary, uh, I was in a uh, discipleship group that talked about these works of piety all the time. We never quite ever got to the other category. And if you never get to the other category, let me tell you what you're setting yourself up for. To be a Pharisee. To be someone who is mean-spirited, angry, and even hateful. Because the works of mercy do something extraordinary in a life that the works of piety cannot do. If you'll notice here, by the way, uh, John Wesley has a, a list of works of mercy, and it goes on for quite a while. So I just put some of them up here. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison or those who are sick, instructing the ignorant, the saving of souls. Those are what Wesley, for instance, called the works of mercy. Can I tell you what he said about them? Thus should the disciple show his zeal for the works of piety. No question about it. Do these things, we have to do them. But much more for works of mercy. Whenever, therefore, one interferes with the other, works of mercy are to be preferred. Even reading, hearing, prayer are to be omitted or to be postponed at charity's almighty call. When we're called to relieve the distress of our neighbor, whether in body or soul. You say, whoa, whoa. What could he be talking about there? What I think he's talking about, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Priests came by first, right? Now, I don't know if you know anything about priests, but they're pretty holy guys. They're professionals in the business. And the priests said, "Yeah, yeah." Now, I don't know what he said. That 18-mile stretch of road they were on right there, that was a road that was called the Bloody Way. It was a dangerous road. Anyway, I don't know why the priest said no. I'm not going to do it. But this is what I wonder: If there wasn't something in town he had to get to that was pretty holy. So I'm just going to go ahead and let this guy die to get to my holy thing. Then comes the Levite. I suspect he was headed to the same meeting. And the Levite comes by and says, "Whoa, can't do it." I don't think so. I mean, the priest is ahead of me about an hour, and I'm I, I got to get moving. I'm going to be late. And boy, if I'm late again, he'll probably fire me. Got to get moving. So he got moving. And then the Good Samaritan came by. And I don't know if he didn't have an appointment or not. I suspect he had something he had to get to the next town. And uh, he decides, yeah, whatever. There's guys is dying here, and I got to stop and help him. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, "Okay, you had a great meeting you had to get to, but listen, if an." Opportunity for mercy comes up, it's okay to say, I'd rather save a life that is dying than make sure I'm on time for my meeting. Unless the meeting's day, spring worship, then you get here on time, okay? I'm, I'm serious about that now. No, no, no. You, you know, I, I think there's something here that's important. We better be people of mercy, people of compassion, or we will get hard hearted. And I think a good bit of the church today is hard-hearted because we stay inside the church building and think that our salvation is based on staying inside the building. And Jesus says, "No, you need to be a released people, to be a compassionate people." So let's get here to the text today. I, I love this passage this week because I did some study on it and. Uh, one of the greatest New Testament scholars in all the world right now is a guy named Craig Keener from, uh, from Kentucky. And Craig says this, some scholars count 10 specific miracles in chapters 8 and 9. And those scholars think that that evokes the 10 plagues that Moses, God through Moses, put down in Exodus. So get a load of this. God says, I want to get my people out of Israel, or excuse me, out of Egypt, And in order to get them out of Egypt, I'm going to have to lay down ten plagues. And uh, those ten plagues worked. At the end of those plagues, Pharaoh says, enough, get out of here. They all got up and left. Now, however, Matthew's writing a Jewish book for Jewish people about a Jew. So Matthew, in particular, of all the gospel writers, says, I'm going to use Jewish things in order to reach the Jewish mind, a Jewish structure for the book to reach a Jewish mind. He says, I bet, says Matthew, they will remember the ten plagues and then the Mount of Sinai. But I'm going to do it, says Matthew, a little bit different. Because Jesus is just, it seems to be a little bit different, doing things different now than he did them back then. Now, let's go up on the Mount, teach the deeper context of the law, right? He didn't do away with the law. Just the deeper context of the law. And then he says, now instead of plagues we're about compassionate miracles. I love that. Plagues! the Mount Sinai! But here it's the Sermon on the Mount and now ten compassionate miracles. You know what I'm thinking? Jesus is saying to us today, if you're serious about the Sermon on the Mount, and I hope you are, If you believe it, this is the kind of stuff that ought to start happening in your life. Now, we may or may not be people of miracles. I hope that we are to some degree. These exact things may not happen in our life, but the fact that we could have compassion for some people, like Jesus was having compassion for those people, I still think we're going to be people of the supernatural and people of compassion. Do you suppose Jesus could do that through Dayspring? So... Ten plagues, then the law. then we've got the law deepened, and the ten compassionate miracles. And the implication: we start obeying Jesus, we will become people of compassion and people of supernatural living. I believe it. I believe it. Now, I've told this story before, but I love it so much. Thomas Jefferson is one day, he's the president of the United States at that point, he is one day trying to get across the river. The bridge has gone out. They thought, can't go across the bridge. used to be a bridge here. Now the bridge is out. And boy, the waters are tall, and it it looks kind of dangerous. But to get to the other side, we're just going to have to go. Jefferson says, hey, come on, let's go. So one by one, they start going across this river. And uh, there's a man, a traveler, that is standing away from a distance, and he sees several people cross the river. Uh, Jefferson hadn't crossed yet. So he goes up, looks right up at Thomas Jefferson and says, hey, give me a ride across the river. Thomas Jefferson says, well, kind of waits a minute, says, yeah, sure, come on up. And he gets up on the horse and he and the president of the United States goes across the river. When they get to the other side, uh, he slides off the back of the horse and a man in the group, Jefferson's group, looked at him, and he was so ticked off, and he said, why did you ask the president of the United States for a ride? Why did you ask one of us? And the man says, well, I looked around at all the faces there, and every face said no, except his. He had a face that said yes. So I decided to go with him. He didn't know it was a president. He just knew it was a yes. Y'all, when we start obeying Jesus, we get a yes face. And we don't just get a yes face to comfortable things, but also to uncomfortable things. We don't just get a yes face for things that are going okay, but for things that aren't going okay. We don't just get a face for things that are going to make us rich, but things that will make us give. That's the kind of people we become. We get, I, I love this rabbi. Wrote a book. Modern rabbi. He says, uh, I, I love the word panem. panim. We talk about that word all the time here at Dayspring. It's the word for face. Whenever you read your Old Testament and see the word presence, the word is panim, and it actually means face. It can mean both things, face and presence. I just love, oh, I love your presence, Lord. I just kind of like to put in, I love your face, Lord. I want to see your face in my life. I want to see your nose, your eyebrows, your mouth. I want to see your ears. I want to see you personally in my life. presence sounds to me more not real. I'm not saying it's not real. I love the presence of Jesus in my life. But when you say, oh, that's a face we're looking at here right now. I like that. I just like it. And so this rabbi writes about this. He says, uh, one day Lincoln was interviewing a guy for his cabinet came in. I forget what the position was, but the guy came in and, uh, he asked him his age. He says, uh, ah, 42. Lincoln said, yeah. And talked to him for a while and dismissed him. And, uh, his chief of staff came in and said, so, going to hire the guy, right? He says, nope, not going to hire him. He says, why not? He says, don't like his face. He says, whoa, 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 wait, don't like his face? What do you mean, don't like his face? He says, eh, ah, you can tell. Just didn't like his face. After the age of 40, your face tells who you are, and I don't like who he is. Now, the chief of staff didn't delve that subject with Lincoln. I would love to know more. What do you mean? Because whatever that means, I've got to start working on mine. How about you? By the way, that that came up this week. I I don't know. I I think I've told you about my listening tour. Uh, Twice a year, I go on a listening tour. I think I've told you this. Some of you really want to be in on this. And the answer is no. If you want to be in on it, I don't want you to be, all right? The listening tour is sitting down in front of somebody like, let's just say it's Austin. Uh, And I say to Austin, I don't need your compliments. I need your critique. So look at my life and tell me what's here that I need to hear about that other people might not tell me. And I'm not going to question you. I might question what's that mean, but I'll just take it. Now, sometimes they say some things I think, eh, no, probably not. But A lot of times, like most of the time, they say things I'm thinking, whoa, yeah. And uh, so this happened this week. I sat down with a guy. I said, so tell me. And I only do this a couple times a year. Talk to three or four people. Talk to me. Talk to me. And the guy said, well, you're never going to believe this. <laughs> but uh, your body language and your face, it's a little unnerving. I'm thinking, well, so that, that's the time for a question, right? Like, what are you talking about? We, we, we're talking about unnerving. He said, well, it just looks like you're uh, kind of bullying when you go into a thing. I think bullying. And I want to look in the mirror and say, that face, Bullying? And I've noticed something about my face. When I lift my eyebrows, and don't even grin, just try to turn up the corners a little bit from this to this, makes a difference. Wouldn't you like to know that if you're Matt Friedemann? Because I got to tell you, I don't look at myself much. You wouldn't either if you look like this. But about once a day is all it takes for me to say, whoa, still there, keep moving. But other people are looking at me, and they can tell, whoa, dude, you got a problem. Lift your eyebrows. Get a grin on your face. People like you a whole lot more. That's what he said to me. I thought, man, this face needs some work. Now, that's true physically. What might it mean spiritually? For all of us, quit looking at me. Look at yourself. Take out a mirror. Look at yourself. What's it mean for us spiritually to have the face of God written across our hearts and lives? guy said this, same rabbi. So I could go down the street. And as the father of a child that's been disabled, I can pretty much detect someone else that's in the same situation. And the reason is, taking care of a child like that across a lifetime changes your face. And Jesus knew it. He says, I want you to have the face of God. But you need to know that's a compassionate face. That's a face with empathy. That's a face with a tear rolling down its cheek. Y'all, does Dayspring, does your family, do you have the face of God? Jesus, we want it. That's what the works of mercy are all about. Second thing here is simply this. When I look at this passage, the first 13 verses of chapter 8, I see Jesus is a pastor, is a minister, is a priest of risk. So when I look down here, he reaches out to touch an unclean man. If you had leprosy, you were unclean. said so in the Bible. said so in the Old Testament. And so you don't touch him. In fact, it got to be such a thing that they were marginalized. They were put out there on the outside of the city gates or on the other side of the street, and you just didn't deal with them, and they didn't deal with you. And Jesus, it says, reaches out and touches. Now, that means if you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. And this is kind of a risk for Jesus as a Jew. Furthermore, it's a risk. If the guy's got serious disease, you might get that disease. And Jesus takes the risk nonetheless and touches Then it says, this Roman centurion comes along. And the centurion says, listen, I, I, I got a need. And this centurion has total sway over Jesus and his people. Total sway. And Jesus decides, I'm going to respond to him whether he's got his basic foot on my neck or not. And basically the centurion had his foot on the Jewish neck at that time. And Jesus says, I don't know what's up, but I sense this man has great faith. He has great need. I have the face of a compassionate God. Both of these people are marginalized. I mean, the lepers marginalized. This Roman centurion, no one wants him around. No one likes him. Everybody basically hates him because he is, one, Roman, and two, a centurion. And he heals nonetheless. He heals nonetheless. In fact, he does, takes another risk. He says, all right, I'm going to exult over the centurion, over my own ethnic people, knowing full well that my Jewish friends aren't going to like what I'm about ready to say. But this is what he says, truly I say to you, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He's looking to a guy That's a centurion. He has made his oath to the emperor. He is not one of us. Jesus says, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. And he could have done this, which means you guys, the 12 disciples, which means you people, priests and scribes. And by the way, Caiaphas, if you can hear this, That means you too, Mr. High Priest. Oh my goodness. You talk about risky. And I'd like to say that's the end of it, but Jesus just keeps going. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, and I imagine he's looking right at the priest right now, you sons of the kingdom will be cast Out into outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Oh my goodness! He's looking right at the holy ones of Israel and he's saying, You aren't holy. You're people of darkness headed for hell. Because you don't have compassion, you don't have the face of mercy. You remember the old joke? Are you that narrow-minded group that thinks only you guys are going to go to heaven? We're more narrow than that, the guy says. We only think all of us are going to heaven. And there you go. If the chosen people aren't going to be there, the sons of the chosen ones aren't going to be there, then Who will? And Jesus says, the people with my face, they will be there. Now, this is a risk. I just want to convince you today, take some risks this week. I don't know what that means, but take some risks this week. When I was growing up, I think everybody kind of stuck in their age. When my, when my children start talking about great basketball, the greatest basketball team of all time, I've, I recognize that they're all from this decade. I think, you ever heard of a guy named Bill Russell? He had so many championship rings, it takes three hands to put them all on. You thought about including him in your list? You ever heard of a guy that went to the University of Kansas called Wilt Chamberlain? You might want to think, at least think about putting them in your list. No, everybody's from this decade. They're sure of it. Dad, no, everybody's so much better. I'm thinking, well, And I'm thinking the same way with just about every sport I'm in because all my greatest players come from about the 30-year period when I was following baseball. You know, who's the greatest pitcher? Are you kidding me? Sandy Koufax? Maybe Bob Gibson? They don't even know who those people are or care. So I'm thinking that same way with, uh, I could care less about race car driving. I care less. But if you talk to me who the greatest of all time was, it's Mario Andretti. That's all there is to say about that. They asked him one time, he said, well, what, 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 what makes you think Mario Andretti, whoever he is, is the greatest of all time? He's the only race car driver to win the Daytona 500, the Indianapolis 500, and the Formula One World Championships. He only got to win all of them. And so they ask him, hey, Mario, tell me, what's it take to be a great Race car driver. And then, like a good interviewer, the interviewer tries to put words in his mouth. Uh, having interviewed many people, this is a good thing to do. Is it fearlessness, reaction judgment, or is it strategy? And he said, All of the above, plus burning desire and confidence. He said, I say burning desire because of the risk involved in race car driving. If you want something so badly, you have a burning desire to do it, and you will not be distracted by fear or risk or anything else. If you want the face of God so badly, all of a sudden you don't have fear. All you have is, let me go do what Jesus wants me to do. Let me go do what this face of mercy wants me to do. If there's a leper there, I'm going to go to the leper. Now, I hate to say this, forgive me for saying it, but if there's COVID-19 somewhere, and Jesus wants me to interact with COVID-19, I'm interacting. You say, well, I don't understand. No, I understand Jesus. I understand Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that, there's a great, great thing called the Parabolani. You say the parabola the parabolani. Say that. Parabolani. It's based on the Greek word risking his life. And this is the deal. Back in Carthage in the year 252. And by the way, this lasted. It started then, but it lasted several hundred years. There was a plague. And in that plague, it wasn't one out of 500 people dying. That's COVID-19, one out of 500, 600, 700, whatever it is. One out of three died. One out of three died. Everybody was dying, or so it seemed. You may or may not die, but you probably will, what everybody was thinking. And so they thought, what are we going to do? Ebbe's dying. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what caused it. They didn't have the science we have today. They just didn't know. And so the bishop of Carthage got together. His name was Cyprian. Cyprian said, hey, Christians, let's have a town meeting. Everybody come together. We got to talk. He said, I need some volunteers that will do the craziest thing. Because we know what every town is doing. We know what this town is doing. They're taking their people and putting them outside of the city walls to die. I need some people, said Cyprian. We're going to give you a name. It's going to be called the Parabolani. And that name means hmm, willing to die. I need some Parabolani that will go outside the city walls and minister to those people. You may not die, but you may. Anybody crazy enough to be part of that team? And a bunch of people raised their hands. Said, count on us. And so it started off there. And it lasted for hundreds of years where people would say, I want to be one of those uh, parabola. I want to be one of those guys. Maybe one of the parabolani, the folks that you can count on to go visit people who are dying and maybe dying of something that I might die from but chalk me up as one of the crazy ones. And for whatever it's worth, this is what they said. Cyprian says, Epaphroditus will be our role model. You say, what? Epaphroditus. Back in Philippians. Let me read it to you. This is Paul writing to the church, the house church at Philippi. He says, I thought it was necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all, and he was distressed because he heard that you were sick. For indeed, Epaphroditus was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but also on me, that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I've sent him, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to compensate for your absence in your service to me. He has risked his life. Now he is risking his life. And Cyprian said, let's start a whole movement based on that guy. Now what's kind of cool about this whole passage is this. Remember that east-west thing? It says this, Truly I say, Jesus said, I've not found such great faith in anyone in Israel, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know what that means? That right there is a deposit on your story. I don't know if you're from east or west, but you're from one of those two, biblically. You're from the east or you're from the west, but you weren't a Jew. And that's what this is saying. You weren't a Jew... You aren't a Jew. And some people have thought that they're the only ones that are going to sit at the table in heaven. Not true. This thing's going well beyond the sons of Israel. It's coming to you. And the face of Jesus shines down on you today. And the face of Jesus says, come to me. I will give you my face. And when you do that, you're going to find yourself in heaven. But when you have my face, remember this, it will have a tear running down its cheek for my kingdom and for my glory. Anybody here want the face of God? Anybody here want to be one of the parabolani? No matter the risk, no matter if I might die or not, I will do what Jesus wants me to do. I'll go out to the abortion clinic. I'll go to John Hopkins and... uh, Try to share my life with some kids in need. I'll go to the prison. Boy, can't wait till they open up the nursing homes and let it back in there, huh? And as long as they start cracking the door a little bit open, Jesus, that's who we've been before COVID, and that's who we're turning back into, is people who are willing to dive through the crack to show people in pain your face. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bless your word in our lives. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you, my dear friends. Thank you.